Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome everybody to Fitness for Consumption. I'm Paul Juris and I am here with my good friend and co-host Gregory Gordon. What's happening, Gigi? I am well, PJ, all is well. As you know, we had to uh, postpone this podcast temporarily so I could help my father find the volume knob on the iPad. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that could be a major challenge. And without that volume, we're all in trouble, right? And by the way, I am a Luddite myself. So me helping anybody find anything on an iPad is a joke in and of itself. But that <laughs> blind all, leading the blind. all things considered, all is well and ready to um, have an interesting conversation today. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of interesting conversations, I was thinking about one that we had not that long ago with Kelly Roberts, mm-hmm. um, in which we were talking about some of the weird things that people do on treadmills. And it got me thinking, you know, treadmills are things that, you know, you love them or you hate them. And there seems to be no dearth of opinions as it relates to treadmills. And some of those opinions are reasonable and some of them are completely ridiculous. And so I thought, you know what? This is a good topic to take up. Like, let's talk about using treadmills uh, because, you know, again, I've seen people lash out at them and make comments that are really negative. And then, mm-hmm. you know, people use them and are happy with them. So I thought this is an opportunity for us to get into a discussion about treadmills. So I, you know, I got a question for you, Gigi. Like, okay. How much have you used treadmills over the years? I have used and used treadmills a lot. So currently I run about nine miles a week. Um, so I run on about treadmills or, on treadmills, or okay. uh, on treadmills exclusively. Um, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, but As anyone that's been listening would know by now, I live in New York City. And for me, um, running around the city, dodging people and bicycles and cars and traffic lights is is not efficient. So I run almost exclusively on treadmills. Um, And I've been using treadmills. You know, my mom, probably 50%, Sylvester Stallone is probably the first 50%. And then my mom is probably the other 50% of how I ended up doing what I do. 
because she would take us. There was a That's YM. A strange company there, <laughs> Sylvester Stallone and your mom. Not if you knew my mom. So <laughs> my mom uh, really quickly was a sergeant in the Israeli army in the 60s when there weren't a lot of female sergeants. So, oh, very um, impressive. Yeah, physical fitness has always been important to my mom. To that point, she would bring us to this tiny box of a YMHA and my mom would go and do her classes. And bad. I guess there were no laws against minors and gyms in uh, the early 80s. So my brother and I would just wander around the gym. And of course, what you gravitate to is the treadmill. So mm -hmm. I have been running on treadmills for all, over 30 years. And I've encountered a bunch of different designs. So I'm quite familiar with treadmills. Yeah, I think, first of all, treadmills are still the most populous device in gyms. So when you look at the cardio areas in gyms, most of the product are treadmills still. But, you know, I've used them. I used to run on them. I probably did more gait analyses on them mm -hmm. um, than actual running on them. But I definitely use them for gait. And, you know, they're used for VO2 max testing and, and metabolic testing. Mm -hmm. uh, you've asked about gold standards in the past, mm -hmm, sure. you know, and, and doing a VO2 max test on a treadmill is a gold standard. So mm -hmm. um, there are quite a bit of uses for them and, you know, still, but, mm -hmm. you know, people used to rage against them and it softened a little lately. I think that some people are coming around to them, but it's still fairly controversial as a topic. Like, you know, people will take one side or the other and they'll bang heads on whether it's good. Well, one thing we're not lacking in the fitness industry is opinion. So certainly, <laughs> and and when you add uh, anything fitness plus machine, boy, yeah, the opinions really start to, uh, you know, start popping up like popcorn. So yeah, there's plenty of opinion on treadmill. Uh, there's plenty of opinion on running. Um mm -hmm in general. So yeah, it'll be interesting today to sort of dissect some of the wheat from the shaft, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what we try to do here on fitness for consumption is to get past the opinion and look at things a little bit more scientifically. Um, so we'll be trying to do that. And so here's how we're going to give our listeners a run for the money, a <laughs> <laughs> pun intended. So that's the name of our episode, a run yes. for the money. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to introduce the issues that are raised uh, around the subject of treadmills. That could be oxygen consumption, kinematics, meaning motion, movement, uh, and kinetics, forces. Mm -hmm. And we'll air the popular opinions, right? So we've got a whole litany of things that we've researched. Um, we'll air the opinions for and against. Mm -hmm. So we'll try to give equal time to both sides. And whether those things are supported by research, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to offer our own take on the subject. What do we think about some of these things? And then we'll get into the related research that's available. Mm -hmm. So that's how we're going to take this on. And if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. And we'll get into that in one minute. All right, we're back. And we are going to give our listeners a run for the money. And we're going to talk about the issues that people raise about treadmills. And the first issue 
the most common complaint, probably, and the one that I've seen more often than anything else, is that treadmill running is mechanically easier than overground running. Right. Yeah, that that tends to be the claim that the belt actually helps do like 50% of the job for you. Right. Or, you know, if people don't talk about how much percentage it's doing, the main claim is that the belt assists the leg turnover, mm-hmm. right? So there was an article in Runner's World that says one reason is that the treadmill belt assists leg turnover, making it easier to run faster. No references on that one, by the way, just their opinion. Mm-hmm. And there's another similar one. There was an internet blog post, treadmill belt assist leg turnover, so it's easier to run faster. And then there was one from Runner's World, which was online, and it says, quote, the belt is fed to you, so you do less work. And what's interesting is that came from a certified strength and conditioning specialist at New York University Sports Medicine. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I've seen more than once people claiming that treadmill running involves passive hip extension, right? So you've seen that. Sure. And also, I think if if you're not analyzing it critically, it makes sense when you stand on it. It seems like that is what could be going on. Um, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, look, the belt is moving and you're standing over mm-hmm. it and you're thinking, okay, the belt is pushing my leg back. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's passive and I'm not really doing any work. And so... I can understand how people would say that. That's what their claims. But what do you think? Do you think that's a legitimate claim? Do you think there's a legitimate argument there? Well, um, so like I said, I I could see on the surface level where it feels like that could be the case. But to your point, uh, there isn't evidence to support that. So as we're going to go through, the evidence for the most part clearly shows that is not the case. That whether the treadmill is trying to push me back or I'm on flat ground and I'm just propelling myself forward. Either way, I've got to push my body forward. To that point, just because we're fixed in space, and I think that's the thing that gets people, we're relatively stationary in space. Mm -hmm. But um, just because that's our position in space doesn't mean we're not doing anything. (laughs) And so before we get into this, and I think that there's there's a lot to discuss now and even later in, in our conversation, We should probably just quickly explain the phases of running so that people understand what it is we're talking about as we get into this discussion about what's going on. So do you want to take that one on? Sure. And let me just give a uh, a preface before I do. You might, the terminology is a little bit different between some people and, uh, but generally speaking, the phases of gait are irrespective of whether you heel strike or forefoot strike, there's an initial contact. There's a loading response as your body weight starts to move over that leg. There's a mid stance to where your center of mass is essentially over that leg. And then there's the push off. So you're pushing your body forward now. And we should mention that as this one leg is on the ground, your other leg is in is what we call the swing leg is moving forward. And you take advantage of that swing leg helping to propel you forward. Okay, and that's also going to be your base as you land and continue to exactly. move forward. Exactly, then over. you start the cycle over and over. Yep, you just that's rinse right. and repeat. That's right. And, you know, for the most part, um, the things that we're going to talk about here involve that initial contact, right? And that's when this shock wave happens. Mm-hmm. Um, 
mid stance is when we start to develop the ground reaction forces, mm -hmm. but late stance and toe off is when we're really applying major ground reaction forces in order to propel us through space. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that we're actually going to be discussing. And to kind of jump right into this, getting back to this notion that on a treadmill, you're stationary above this moving deck. What this really comes down to is relative motion between the runner and the supporting surface, not absolute motion. So when you think about it, when you're running over the ground, there's relative motion that's occurring between you and the ground. You happen to be moving over the ground. Mm -hmm. When you're on a treadmill, there's still relative motion that's going on, but instead now the ground is moving under you. Mm -hmm. But your position relative to the supporting surface is changing. Mm -hmm. And that relative motion basically creates a condition that is similar in overground and treadmill running. Yeah. And now, there's a how really do you know that's true. <laughs> I mean, how do you, you know, how yeah. do you validate that? I was just gonna say there's a really easy way to prove it. Just stand on a treadmill and don't run and see where you end up. You're gonna push, <laughs> you're gonna be falling off the treadmill very quickly throwing you get thrown right off the back of the treadmill that's right so if you set the treadmill to eight miles per hour and that belt is moving at eight miles per hour if you stand on that thing and do nothing you're going to be moving eight miles per hour but in the wrong direction mm -hmm. you're going exactly. backwards so mm -hmm. really what is going on is in order for us to maintain a fixed position in space we need to move ourselves forward at the same rate at which the treadmill belt is moving us backwards. So we have to try to move forward at eight miles per hour mm -hmm. in order to maintain that fixed position over the belt. Right. Well, that's not a passive process. Definitely not. The other thing to consider when we're watching people run on a treadmill and anyone who does this, unless you see people that do these really kind of level loping strides, which people can do outdoors also, whenever somebody's running, there's a vertical displacement of the mm -hmm. center of mass, right? Mm -hmm. You don't move just horizontally. You got to mm -hmm. get yourself up in the air, which allows you to increase your stride length. Mm -hmm. And the typical vertical displacement is about four centimeters. Well, that happens on a treadmill too. So the only way that you can get your body to move vertically four centimeters is if you apply force down into the deck of the treadmill. Mm -hmm. That will create a reactive force, which is then going to move you up. So this is not a passive process, right? The hip is not moving passively. We actively have to apply force into the deck in order to move us forward relative to this belt that is moving backwards, not passive at all. Right. Because if it was passive and done for us, we wouldn't be, there'd be no need for us to generate the kind of force we need to get that vertical displacement. You couldn't. I mean, so without active force production out of the lower extremities, you could not displace yourself. Mm -hmm. And again, if you don't produce enough force to move you forward eight miles an hour, you're getting thrown off the back of the, of the deck. Mm-hmm. So in terms of what we actually have to produce in order to run on a treadmill, basically the same thing. But right. don't take our word for it. Let's look at what some of the research says. Okay.
So there was a study in 1998 by White and colleagues. And by the way, we're going to put all of these references and citations in the show notes. So all of the websites that we pull this information from and then all of the articles that we cite will all go in the show notes so that people can find them for themselves if they want to see what's actually said in them or they want to look at them more carefully. So a study by White et al. in 1998, they compared ground reaction forces during walking at slow, normal, and fast paces on overground and treadmill. And Mm -hmm. what they found were the kinematic patterns were identical, which means kinematic is all the joint movement and segmental motion. That was all identical. Now, they said that there was a small but significant difference in ground reaction forces during mid and late stance. So that's possible. At the normal and fast speeds. That's right. At the normal and fast speeds. So slow, there was none. Mm Because slow, you're not producing much anyway. Right. Or less. Um, yeah. So basically what they're saying is the movement patterns are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a study that was done, and this is actually a landmark study. And if you want to look at anybody referencing other research, this is probably the single most frequently cited study in biomechanics of gait. And it was done in 1980 by a Dutch biomechanist named Gerrit Jan van ingen Schienau. Okay. I, I pronounced that right. <laughs> so, so coincidentally, so this is the guy, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with speed skating, uh, but there was Not a skate. Okay. So there was a skate that was, you know, now if you know speed skates, it's a very short boot and it's got this really super long blade. Uh-huh. And there was this new design that came out, oh, I don't even know, like 20 years ago called the clap skate. And what it was is the blade had a hinge in the front that attached to the boot, but the back was actually free to dissociate from the boot. So the boot would come up and the blade would would stay on the ice longer Hmm. in, in order to maintain better tracking. Well, Van Ingen Schienau was wow. the inventor of the clap speed skate. I'll have to Google it. You have to Google it. Very interesting stuff. So this is a really technical study that he did. But basically what he said is, look, when we're doing these gait analyses and we're doing research on running or walking, we use what we call a reference frame. So anytime we do a motion study, we're looking at somebody moving in relation to a frame of reference. So that's Mm -hmm. how we know how people are moving. But the problem is when you're doing gait and somebody's walking, let's say down a runway, you need to have a reference frame that's moving along with the person, not a fixed reference frame. And so all of the studies that use a fixed reference frame to observe and quantify motion out in the world, not on a treadmill, they're not accurate enough if you're going to compare that to being on a treadmill. And so basically what he determined was that when you do it right, when you have a moving reference frame outdoors over ground and a fixed reference frame on a treadmill, the kinematics and the biomechanics, the kinetics are identical. There's no difference between running outside and running on a treadmill, at least according to this study. Right. Now, what is the solution to um, 
what his problem is. So when you when you do when you have to change the frame of reference, do you just have to have a lot more space so you can have a, a camera that can track? Yeah. So the whole frame is moving with the person. So normally, what you do in a fixed environment, like what we did at Cybex is the cameras are set up around whatever it is you're measuring. We had a force plate in the center. So mm -hmm. the person's moving in the center. They've got markers on their body, so it's infrared. Mm -hmm. And the cameras are surrounding the person and the person's on the force plate. Now, what you do is you actually have to identify a fixed point in space against which all of the motion that you're capturing is measured. So normally it could be like the left front corner of the force plate that's that point in space. And then you have this little wand that you move around in what we call the capture volume. And it sets the positions of the wand against that point in space. So mm -hmm. now everything that you capture is relative to that point. Uh-huh. Okay. But in an outdoor environment, what Van Egan she now is saying is that you can't do that. It can't be a fixed point like the left front corner of the forest plate. The whole frame has to be moving along with the person in order to get the motion relative to the whole moving environment. Right. So, so is that possible to do? Yeah. He okay. Did. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So he did it. So, yes, it's definitely possible. Um, and, and so, you know, if you're going to do the work, you need to do it that way. So in, in essence, this partially explains the findings of the white study where they're saying there's small but significant differences because the body position in space is going to determine what those joint moments are. And as your body changes its position relative to the reference frame, the quantification of joint moments changes. So if you make that adjustment, then everything sort of normalizes and you get identical output from both conditions. Yeah. So it basically what you're saying is that it's got to be an, as close as you can to an apples to apples comparison, because if it's slightly off, even though all the kinematics might be the same, it's just going to appear to be slightly off, but it's not an apples to apples comparison. That's exactly right. So... You know, another potential issue related to what White discovered is treadmill design. So it's not necessarily that it's the treadmill problem, but it may be the particular treadmill that they used. And we'll get into that a little bit later. We'll talk mm -hmm. about treadmill design. Uh, there was another study done by Kloytenberg in 2012. They used an instrumented treadmill to compare ground reaction forces to overground running. They had 12 male, 12 female runners at slow and preferred running speeds. And they found a correlation in ground reaction forces between the two conditions of 0.95. So basically, the research is telling us that biomechanically running on a treadmill and running over ground are the same thing, right? So all these people that are throwing up their arms and saying it's passive hip extension and you don't do as much work, not true. Right. So at least for the kinematic component, I think it's fair to say that there's enough evidence that supports. It's really very similar. There isn't a significant difference. However, PJ, I think it's fair to bring up one thing. So as we were going through these studies, and you know, these these a lot of these studies were new to me, that I think when someone thinks of a study where someone's running over ground um, versus a like a, a treadmill study, they probably imagine someone might be like running in Central Park and they've got some sensors on and they're doing five miles in the park. Then they come back and they're comparing that data. And as you just mentioned, that if you out, are doing outdoor running, you have to have a, the technology to be able to follow, to 
to move the frame of reference. So a lot of these studies, the way they're actually comparing overground running to treadmill is that someone is in a, a fixed condition like a lab and they're running down like like a hallway and there's a force plate and they've got to intersect with the force plate at a given time in order to get on it to record accurate, accurate information. So like we That's said right. in, in um, the fine print episode a, a couple episodes ago, it's not necessarily significant, but it's also not insignificant. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I mean, you know, I've been to uh, the Reebok corporate headquarters, for example, and I've looked at their biomechanics lab. I've been to Nike and I've looked at their biomechanics lab. You know, they have pretty long runways in which they have people running across these spaces. And you make an interesting point there because you have to time your running so that you land on the force plate. Mm -hmm. Now, the force plate is embedded in the ground, so there's no step height that you have to worry about when you're running. But nevertheless, you know, they put a big X on it and mm -hmm. you can see where you're supposed to land on it. But not everybody is going to land perfectly on it. And so there's going to be some variability when you actually do those measures. Mm -hmm. So look, you know, technology is always changing and always improving. But I've also said that our ability to learn and measure things is really dependent on the instruments that we have available to do so. And some of the things that we had available 20 years ago have really evolved over time. Mm -hmm. And as those things evolve, we start to learn new things. Mm -hmm. um, so we really always have to be cognizant of what kind of technology we're using. How are we taking these measurements? Because they do cause changes in the outcomes just because the instruments are better. Yeah, it's also something just to keep in mind when you're reading papers from different decades that, look, they're measuring stuff based on the technology they had then. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And it changes. Mm -hmm. So um, let's move on to the next topic because, you know, I think we can agree and hopefully our listeners will understand now that when you're running on a treadmill, it's very active and you are generating ground reaction forces that are absolutely necessary to keep you moving relative to the moving belt. So the question then is, are the energy demands different? Because that's something of concern if you're running for metabolic reasons, whether it's just caloric expenditure, you're doing heart rate training, or you're even running for performance reasons so that you're, you know, improving your running uh, speed, you're going to be working on running efficiency, whatever that may be. If the metabolic costs are different, then that can be a reason that someone might want to avoid treadmill. Mm -hmm. So here's here are the claims and what's interesting about this is that now you start to see claims coming from both sides of the argument there mm -hmm. are people out there that say it's not as metabolically effective and there are other people that say it's more metabolically effective so mm -hmm. this is kind of an interesting subject yeah absolutely so generally people say that because treadmills are easier the metabolic costs are lower so there's a less of a training effect. Well, so, you know, we should take a second to talk about training effect because training effect is obviously the stimulus that you're getting from any given exercise. But if you are used to only running outdoors and then you run on a treadmill, guess what? Because you're unaccustomed to it, it's going to feel harder. It may be, it may be more metabolically uh, 
costly you would because you're not efficient on it yet there might be things that you're you know subtly you're running slightly different just because you're not accustomed to the treadmill yet if you're only accustomed to running on a treadmill and you run outdoors that could feel harder because again you're just adapting to a little bit different you know not necessarily the kinematics of the movement but you're just running outdoors you may be running if you're like me and you live in brooklyn and you run in prospect park the the park the road is actually sloped it's banked a little bit and mm -hmm. so that's a little, that's something to get used to. So the mm -hmm. training effect has a lot to do with what you're accustomed to. Oh, I agree. I mean, that's a great point to bring up. And it also gets to this notion of adaptation, which we talk about in why we move in the fitness ecosystem. And that is, yeah, you're adapting to certain training conditions. And so doing something exclusively means that some of these other conditions that you may have an opportunity to challenge yourself with uh, are not available. And so you don't adapt in that way. So I agree. If you're accustomed to doing something in, in a certain way and then you change that modality, you're going to have to get accustomed to the new modality. Mm -hmm. And initially that can feel more challenging. There was mm -hmm. an interesting article in women's running, which is online. Why does treadmill running feel harder than outside? And what they suggest is that it feels harder because running outdoors is more efficient, which is kind of interesting. And they do cite a study, which was uh, done by Mooses et al. And it says that there's better running economy while outdoors. So um, here's the interesting thing. Some claim it's easier, others claim it feels harder. How can it be both easier and harder at the same time? Well, yeah, again, it comes to, you know, at least what you're, what you're accustomed to certainly has uh, a part in that and the subjects they're taking into their study and their, you know, their background of activity. So all that stuff plays a part in that. Oh, absolutely. Um, so on the other side of the argument, there was, there's a website called greatest.com, not mm -hmm. the greatest, but greatest.com. And they had an article is running outside really better than miles on the treadmill. Now they claim that treadmill running actually burns more calories than outdoor running. Mm -hmm. And to support that, they cite an interview that they had with this gentleman named David Seek, who was the founder of Equinox's precision running program. And he states that people can engage in hit training on treadmills and that leads to improved cardio outcomes. Um, the implication there being that it's easier to do that on a treadmill and people don't typically do it outside. So, you know, let's get on the treadmill and we can improve our cardio with HIIT training. Well, we look for support for that claim and we couldn't find any studies that he referenced or uh, any citations that were within that article. So that's an opinion. And again, look, it's it's possible if you prefer treadmill running and it's easier for you to do high-intensity interval training on a treadmill, but you could certainly do HIIT training outdoors. There's nothing preventing you from doing HIIT training outdoors. So, you know, for someone who's developed a running a treadmill running program for a fitness club chain, I would imagine, now maybe I'm speaking at a turn here, but, you know, is he a little extra motivation for him to talk about the virtues of treadmill running? Yeah, look, I think you'd have to be, be naive to think that, uh, 
even if it's not a nefarious that he's, you know, uh, he's trying to take over the world and sell everybody's treadmill class. It's certainly something that if he's gone through the level of creating this class, promoting this class, selling this class, it's something that like he believes very strongly, uh, I would suppose. Yeah. And so here's my insight into the subject. So who's run on a treadmill without getting their heart rate up? I mean, if you go and get on a treadmill and run eight to 10 miles per hour, your heart rate's going to go get elevated. Now, if that happens, that's metabolic training, right? Or, sure. you know, you work up a sweat. People are dripping while they're running on treadmills. So, sure. you know, just anecdotally, experientially, anybody who's run on a treadmill knows that their heart rate gets elevated. They're working hard. They're breathing hard, right? Respiration increases, so to suggest that there's less metabolic work being done, I think, is a little questionable. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And, you know, when in reference to the Moose's study that suggested that people are more economical outdoors, well, what's interesting about that particular study, and again, we'll put the citation in our show notes, they were measuring elite distance runners running around a track. So they had a very specific population that was running in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And so it may be true that that's what they found, that they were more efficient doing that than running on a treadmill, which is what made the treadmill seem harder. But does that same finding apply to casual runners running outdoors in the park? And I don't know if that's true. Yeah, and that's exactly the the point I was bringing up earlier, that the elite long-distance runners probably have a lot more time on the track than they do on a treadmill, is my guess. You know, mm-hmm. most of the college level and professional coaching is, you know, they do a lot of, obviously, outdoor track running. And so, um, yeah, look, if the, again, if that's what they're accustomed to and, you know, they haven't been on the treadmill nearly as much, yeah, there, there's going to be some, there's going to be a slight learning curve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and let's put this in a slightly different context. If your goal is to burn calories and get in shape, I would imagine you don't want to be more economical when you're working out. I mean, if you're more economical, that does make it easier. So if your training objective is to burn more calories, to, you know, to lose weight, to get in shape, then I would think you want it to be less economical. Well, that's interesting because I feel like I can argue that either way. So I'll use a personal example. I'm a horrible swimmer. My mechanics are just god awful. So bad to almost every time I go in a pool, the lifeguard is like, hey, man, like if you want some lessons and but I don't because I (laughs) want it to be I want it to be five minutes. I want it to be a version of my high intensity interval training. And I'm not concerned about injury. Now for running, look, we, we're going to talk about it in another podcast, but there is this initial shock or transient impact of when your leg hits the ground. So there's an argument I feel like I can make to, yeah, I might be burning less calories the more efficient I get with it. But if I'm better at absorbing the shock and using elastic energy to help propel me forward, and I'm actually getting more efficient at running, but my kinematics are actually better over time, that's a trade-off I would personally be comfortable taking. I think that's an interesting perspective. And it also suggests if you are becoming more efficient. And by the way, if you run on a treadmill as you adapt and as you become used to it and as you develop those skills of running on a treadmill, you will become more efficient on it. Mm -hmm. But to your point, 
what that will do is allow you to go longer and maybe mm-hmm. faster. And mm-hmm. so that gain deficiency is actually going to help you improve your output, which could then get you the training effect that you're looking for. And with uh, a higher probability of safety. Okay, fair enough. Um, but I will say, listen, I don't think that hit training or interval training is necessarily relegated to treadmills. I mean, we can do it anyway. Absolutely and, not. Yeah. You know, some of the early interval training studies, uh, books that were available were all about track workouts. And mm-hmm. so interval training really the genesis of interval training was on the track, not necessarily on a treadmill. So I wouldn't take the position or support the position that you can only do it on a treadmill. Absolutely not. And there's <laughs> what's become to be thought of as an unfortunate, unfortunately named uh, technique called the fartlek. And yeah. I promise I'm not making it up. F-A-R-T-L-E-K. So fartlek is a Swedish term for speed play and it was developed by a running coach in 1930. And simply it was just a form of interval training that he found that when his athletes, instead of doing steady state training, meaning doing the same speed for a certain amount of miles, he would just uh, vary the tempo. And it's also sort of self-directed um, to where it's not necessarily like five minutes on, two minutes off, anything like that. It's just sort of uh, variable when they would change tempo, but he found that his runners actually were winning more races after they uh, included some type of interval training in their training. Yeah. And I think that is pretty consistent with what we're seeing today with HIIT training. Mm -hmm. But again, you don't need to be on a treadmill. You don't need to be on a bike. You can do it basically anywhere. Yep. And so, you know, I would put a check in the box that outdoor running is fine for that. But you know what? So is treadmill running. So Mm -hmm. is there really a difference? Well, there may be experientially, but I think both of them would provide an equally good experience that way. Sure. But, you know, what does the research say? Let's, let's, you know, finish this particular issue by looking at some of the research that's available. And let's start with the Moose's study. So, yeah, there was a difference in running economy, but what they found was that VO2 max was the same for both conditions, right? And so the ultimate test of metabolic output is your maximum oxygen consumption. Mm-hmm. And so what they're saying is when you test someone on a treadmill or you measure them outside you get the same result, which means metabolically they're working equally hard. Yeah, because the the inference would be that if it was harder, they would have to breathe much faster, work a lot harder, their VO2 max would be different. But in fact, it wasn't. No. And that was also supported by another study by Bassett and colleagues. That one is in medicine, science, and sports and exercise. And they did a comparison of VO2 max tests on a treadmill and over ground. And they had a correlation of 0.95 for those for level and incline. So they even looked at incline running. And so they concluded that energy expenditure was the same. Also, there was a study by Elliott et al. in 2010 in the British Journal of Sports Medicine, the biomechanical effects of treadmill training on running performance. Now, this is interesting because their subjects did 16 30-minute sessions. (laughs) So 16 sessions, 30 minutes long, and they did hit intervals, five seconds on, 10 seconds off, 10 and a half miles per hour at a 20 to 25% grade. So I just want to make a quick point. Uh, (laughs) uh, As I started reading the study, I was like, you know what? 
I've got to this has got to be from Australia. So, you know, <laughs> when you do studies in America, there is a board that you have to, first of all, present your, you know, your idea for the study and they have to approve it. And we all need to thank Australia because anytime for human subjects, anytime you see like some of the more extreme studies, Australia is a very common country to see some of these. So now just think about that level of exertion from five seconds on, 10 seconds off, 16, 30 minute session. That's at a 20 to 25% grade. Where do you find people that are willing to sign up for that? Yeah, seriously. There's some serious masochists that are signing up to be subjects. Ten and a half miles per hour, 20 to 25% grade. 25% grade is you're taking the treadmill and you're putting it all the way up as high as it can go. And by the way, some treadmills only go to 10%. Yeah, so, it's it's actually really rare to find a commercial treadmill in a gym that's going to go anywhere near 25%. Yeah, talk about having to stay on the deck. I mean, just standing <laughs> on it, you're going to roll off the back. So this is pretty extreme. Um, their VO2 max increased by three milliliters per kilogram per minute. So this was treadmill running, and they had an increase in VO2 max. Mm-hmm of three milliliters per kilogram per minute. By the way, we did an episode before of the fine print called What's It All About? And we were talking about the VO2 max improvements in these subjects who were given a training program supervised by high-end personal trainers. And you know, it was this incredible program developed by industry experts. And they trained for 36 sessions. Mm-hmm. 12 weeks, 36 sessions, not 16 sessions. And they had an increase of 2.7 milliliters per kilogram. This one, they did 16 sessions and they had an increase of three milliliters per kilogram. Uh, just saying. Anyway, so we're going to move on from that pretty quickly. Hello all, GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend, Jennifer Schwartz, on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. So there's another claim that I see sometimes, and that is that running on a treadmill affects your gait. So the gait being the steps and strides and stride length and cadence. And, you know, what you talked about, the gait cycle is Mm -hmm. that running on a treadmill can affect your gait. There was a a claim that was made by greatest again, who said (laughs) that (laughs) treadmill running induces shorter stride length. And they cited in uh, this review article by Schubert indicating that the changes that occur uh, in gait occur on a treadmill. Now, This is one of the reasons why we do the fine print, because if you actually read the Schubert article, the information is interesting on its own right, that people do make gait changes. And those gait changes occur as a result of trying to mitigate shock. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have a future episode in which we get deeper into running mechanics and shock attenuation and footwear and things like that. But what's really interesting here is that the article was miscited. So what Greatest claimed 
was that people running on treadmills shorten their stride to reduce shock. Mm-hmm. But what the review article showed was that people running everywhere shorten their stride in order to reduce shock. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just the treadmill runners that did it. It was everybody that did it, regardless of whether they were on a treadmill or running outdoors. Mm-hmm. So here we have an issue with people citing research, but not necessarily taking the time to go deeply enough into it in order to correctly get the information out of it and then relate that to other people who are reading their work. Right. And some, you know, look, sometimes it happens by accident. I'm sure I've been guilty of it in, you know, writing papers for school that you, you, you know, upon further review, you tend to see the information differently. But yeah, a lot of times it's just, I agree that it's just uh, someone not going through the fine print to really see whether what is being said in this paper really truly fits their narrative or it just feels close enough that they're going to throw it in there and hope that no one really checks it. Yeah. And, you know, this is why we're here is because some people may look at that website and they may read that content and just say, okay, I believe it. But the reality is that information wasn't correctly presented. And we want to make sure that that doesn't happen, uh, at least on our watch. Now, you were, we were talking about this offline, and you know we mentioned Kloytenberg a minute ago about how you know there were no biomechanical changes, but you had an observation when you were looking through Kloytenberg. Yeah, so he does reference in his paper, uh, he does reference three other studies that also supported the, the, the idea that treadmill running shortened stride. Now, I haven't read those three other papers. Anyone that's interested, they are cited on, on the Kloytenberg paper. But so, look, there does seem to be some support from that. And, you know, I want to bring this back to one of the first things I said when we started this episode is that I've been using treadmill since the early 80s. And the the treadmill design back then, literally, like the treadmill that I first started playing around with, you know, relative to a treadmill that's in a commercial gym now, is very narrow in terms of its width and mm-hmm. much shorter than they make them now. So mm-hmm. without knowing exactly the brand someone's using, that could definitely, at least initially, impact uh, stride length. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we will talk a little bit more about treadmill design as we move through the episode. Mm-hmm. But yeah, some, it's, the, the issue isn't necessarily that it's a treadmill, but that particular treadmill, again, that they're running on and how that could cause some changes um, in gait, in step mm-hmm. length and things like that. The website active.com, they suggest that running on a treadmill requires greater quadriceps function while running outdoors. Uh, involves more hamstring activity. Now, they don't cite anything in that particular one, so that's completely an opinion. I really have a hard time understanding how they can make a claim like that, you know, unless they're going back to the fact that it's passive hip extension and hip extension is, you know, a gluten hamstring function, but it's not passive hip extension. And so I'm not sure where they get that. And I just, I'm going to call them on that one because I can't see that 
as being a realistic claim. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's also why we do episodes like the fine print, because this is, this is an issue that when you start to like, look at the evidence for any of these opinions, a lot of times it's just the opinion. And look, they're entitled to it. We would have to call them and see what their perspective is. But, you know, in, if you have an opinion and you want to qualify it scientifically, you've got to provide some evidence for that. You know, it's, it's possible that some gate changes can occur. We discussed in our episode, Why We Move, which was our inaugural episode, we discussed this notion of spatial constraints, how the mm-hmm. space around us can potentially affect the way we move. And, mm-hmm. you know, for example, if you're running on a curved treadmill deck, that could cause you to shorten up your gait. There's no question about it. And, you know, it's possible also that runners that push up toward the front of the treadmill because it feels more secure, if the motor to the treadmill has a larger cover over it, then that could interfere with your gait. And so if you'd like to stay up front and your foot hits that cover, either you're going to have to back away or you're going to have to shorten up your step. So that can cause a change. PJ, you, uh, I also read a white paper that you guys did at Cybex on um, some tre- treadmill studies. And what, what was funny to me is that there was one subject that apparently had his head craned to the TV while he was running. So that, look, that, that definitely can have some slight changes in your, in your gait too. If you're watching TV and not really paying attention to what you're doing, like you might make some slight alterations in your, in your stride. That's an interesting point that you raise. And what I would say to that is that it's not necessarily that his stride changed because he was looking up, but he was distracted to the point that he didn't realize how his position on the belt was changing. And that happens naturally. And we'll talk about that a little bit when we get into some of the our final insights on this. We don't stay in the same position on a treadmill. Mm-hmm. And there, that's movement variability. And that's something that occurs outdoors and it also occurs on a treadmill. So in that particular case, yeah, he was looking up at the TV um, and he was completely unaware of his position on the deck. And the natural variability that he experienced in moving around, he didn't realize how close he was getting to the side rails of the deck mm-hmm. and his foot hit the side rail and he went down hard. So <laughs> <laughs> that can happen. But so the issue wasn't necessarily that looking at the TV causes gait to change. His gait was normal, but what it did was it distracted him to the point that he was unaware that he was changing his position in space. Mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting thing that that you saw in the study that we published. It was an internal publication, but um, it was it was a discovery that sort of made us all scratch our heads and say, okay, how do we resolve this issue? And that was something <laughs> that actually went into the design of our treadmills. Hmm. You know, I think that there are potential gate changes that can occur, but those are more experiential. And the research doesn't necessarily suggest that in a research setting, you're going to see changes, right? So it's something that, you know, it can happen, but we don't see much evidence supporting it. Now, there was an interesting study that was done by Diane Damiano. So in one of our episodes, Whose Movement Is It Anyway? We were talking with Dr. Lori Quinn and Diane Damiano came up and the discussion was robotics, right? Mm -hmm. Exoskeletons and and working with the motor impaired. Right. 
And she did a study that was looking at gait as well as things like ellipticals and overground walking and cycling. She developed something called the gait deviation index, which was this way of determining how far these different activities deviated from normal walking gait. And she said that treadmill walking and outdoor walking were nearly overlapping so that the gait characteristics were the same. So look, you know, just like most things in the fitness industry, there's no shortage of opinion here, good or bad, especially when it comes to treadmills. And the truth is, based on empirical evidence, treadmill running is mostly equally effective as outdoor running. So let's, you know, stop the hyperbole and give some credit to these devices that actually do some good but there still are a few noteworthy criticisms and some really interesting treadmill facts that we should discuss. And we're going to take those on in our next segment. Sounds good. We're back. And, you know, as we said in the previous segment, there's some critical observations regarding treadmills that are worth discussing. And so let's introduce those and we'll offer some recommendations for improving the experience based on what we know. How's that? Sure. So I will start with what I always hear. The the number one complaint of why someone doesn't like a treadmill is that they always just say it's boring. Like I can't stand, I just can't stand running in place. It's just too <laughs> boring for me. It's just too monotonous. I just can't stand doing it. You know, fair point. getting on any device in the gym that, you know, you're just fixed in space and you're looking around can be very boring. You know, you're running in place. So I get it. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, You know what? I actually have a completely opposite view to that is that I have a very hard time meditating like at home when it's quiet and putting aside time. And my I'm, and by the way, I'm not looking for advice here. I, I've, <laughs> but I've, I'll give it to you anyway. I've, I've tried a lot of things. It's just something that's difficult for me. But to me, running is a form of meditating. It's, it's a form of active meditating to me. And again, I live in New York City. And I understand some people get off on the energy of running on the street and it's loud and chaotic and all the stop and start. For me, it's the opposite. Once I'm on, I just want to control the speed to whatever the focus of my workout is that day. And then the rest of the time I'm meditating. So to me, the monotony helps me um, not only solve a physical problem, but actually helps me solve emotional problems, quite frankly. Well, you know, it's an interesting point because I think some people do really just zone out, Mm -hmm. right? You get into a rhythm, you get into a pace and you just go. And I probably would see how that could be somewhat cathartic while you're mm-hmm. out there and, and you're doing it. For those people who do find them monotonous, however, look, you know, that's why televisions were invented, right? Not for our living rooms, for the treadmills. And <laughs> we have we have built-in monitors now yeah. on treadmills. So you could dial up what you want and you can even put your tablet on there and watch what you want. But there are some caveats to that. And what's interesting is when you see people running on a treadmill, it's very difficult to watch TV, especially when it's on the console right in front of you. And that's because of this vertical displacement that we were talking about earlier. When your body's moving up and down and this little image is on the console in front of you, you get a little dizzy trying to keep up with that. So if the TV's far away, it's easier to keep your eye on that. 
But as you mentioned before, and what we discovered in our own research is if you get too distracted, uh, it could be a problem because mm -hmm. you will not recognize how you're moving around on the deck and that can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's a type of treadmill you're unfamiliar with. Absolutely. So can they be monotonous? Sure. But, you know, bring some music and zone out or focus on something or do some mental arithmetic. Uh, those are ways that you can overcome the monotony and, of, and the boredom of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so here's one I get a lot of times is that, you know, running on a treadmill indoors, there's no wind. Yeah. So look, that the wind is a resistance. Anyone that has ever, so last year I was living on the beach and, mm -hmm. you know, by the ocean, there's a lot of wind. And look, there's no question that if you, you want added resistance to your workout, which totally valid, um, yeah, there's no wind. You don't have to overcome the wind. Um, to me, again, I'm on the other end of that. I don't mind running in the heat. I don't mind running in the cold. I don't mind running in the rain but I don't like running against the wind. Um, so for me, I prefer a treadmill where I can run indoors, play with the speed, and not have to, you know, fight against the wind as I'm moving forward. And so, you know, the wind blowing is one thing. The, the other thing that maybe is a little bit more subtle that people don't recognize is just drag, mm -hmm. right? So as we're running through the air and our body's moving through space and the air is passing over us, there's drag that's created by the air flowing around us, right? So those are fluid dynamics that are occurring. Now at slower speeds, it doesn't really do anything. Mm -hmm. But when you get up to running around 13 miles an hour, which is a pretty good clip, yeah. um, then drag forces can be significant. And so if you're a runner, not just a jogger, but if you're a runner and you need to sort of introduce the resistance that one might account, encounter at high speeds or higher running speeds, there's an easy solution for that. And all you do is set the treadmill incline to one or 2%. And that increases the demand, mm -hmm. right? So now you're running uphill, you have to work harder. So if you want to simulate the effects of air dynamics and drag, just add a little bit of incline to the deck and you will pretty much get the same res result. So you can match the en energy expenditure you would get by running outdoors. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that's the way we would handle that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've been talking about pacing and we've been talking about running speeds and hit, and there is a common criticism that for a lot of runners, what they do is they get on the treadmill, they set it to six, seven, eight miles per hour, and they just leave it there. And so they never get to improve their pacing characteristics. If they're runners and they, and they compete, you're not going to get pacing out of it. So fair comment. I mean, look, if you keep it at a constant pace the whole time, then you're going to be running at a constant pace. And as you mentioned earlier, you're not going to adapt to changing paces. So what's the solution for that? I mean, quite simply, you can just change the speed. Um, but you know, it all comes down to ultimately what your goal is. So um, yeah, if you run at a fixed speed and you're not getting some of the natural variability you might get outdoors, I, I think that's totally valid. Um, certainly on a treadmill, you can just 
change the speed or you know we've spoken a little bit about periodization where for a period of time you can run at a fixed speed two weeks later change the speed a little bit change the incline play with some other variable so yeah it's it's there's plenty of ways of getting around that yeah just get more proactive right instead of always running at a con you know at a fixed speed even within a workout run a little faster, run a little slower, mm-hmm. change the incline. I mean, you know, play with it like you're running outdoors and make it an active event as opposed to just turning off your brain. So mm-hmm. that's not a difficult thing to solve. And then, you know, treads can be difficult. We talk about we want to do intervals, but treads can be kind of difficult with high-speed intervals. And there are a few reasons for that. One is because of the speed controls. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we're doing interval training, we want to get it up to speed as quickly as we can, but then we want to get it to slow down as quickly as we can so we can get into our recovery pace. Mm-hmm. A lot of treadmills won't do that. You have to hit the up and down speed button and it takes a little bit of time for it to change. Mm-hmm. So that can be a pain. And one solution that treadmill runners typically deploy is they jump up in the air and get their feet on the side rails and land on the side rails. So you can very quickly get off the deck. Mm-hmm. You got to hold on to the support rails on the side, the handrails. You jump up, get your feet on the side rails of the deck, and then you can control the speed. But the problem on some treadmills is that those side rails are pretty narrow. And if you're not really focused on what you're doing, you can actually hit the belt. And that could cause you to stumble and maybe fall. So that is potentially an issue. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's obviously with COVID happening right now, it's not as much of an issue. But sometimes in some clubs that I've been at, they space treadmills very closely together. And to where, Mm -hmm. like, if someone's jumping off on the sides, they actually, like, I've seen it before, actually, like, jump one leg gets so wide, it actually sort of hits the the closest part of the next person's treadmill. So, and it's Mm. just something that as that person, you know, it's just something that that person that's actually jumping off has to consider. So it's adding a demand that, you know, is just another thing they have to process. So yeah, fair point. Yeah. So look, one really good solution is to get on a self-propelled treadmill, Mm -hmm. not a motorized treadmill, right? So the nice thing about those is there's a little bit of drag that they introduce into them. And so you can sprint as fast as you want. And then when you stop, they stop. So it's a really nice way of doing it. And that way you don't have to worry about the motor changing the speed. The thing just stops and it works pretty effectively. You know, PJ, just anecdotally, I've seen that most of the clubs I'm a member of have at least one self-paced treadmill. And I don't see them get a lot of use. And so my thought is just that it's novel. It's just something that people aren't accustomed to yet. And as they get on it, you know, it feels a little bit different to them and it's weird. So they're just more comfortable being on like the typical treadmill that they're accustomed to. But do you have any thoughts on that? You know, people are creatures of habit and they use what they use and they like what they like. And for some people, when there is something new and it is different, they are reluctant to try it or they'll try it once and say, Ooh, this is different. I don't want to do this because I like what I was doing. And again, this goes back to the fitness ecosystem. If we want to induce adaptation, we need to challenge our bodies in different ways. We need appropriate challenges, right? Not just challenges for the sake of doing that, but yeah, we need to sometimes sort of push ourselves 
to try these new things in order to adapt in ways that will then make us more comfortable at those things. But as someone that's worked on the business side of an exercise equipment company, do you think that these self-propelled treadmills have, <laughs> no pun intended, legs and they'll continue to be produced and they'll gain popularity? Or do you think they'll become something like, um, you know, Betamax, where that's interesting technology, but just never really catches on? Yeah, I don't think they're going away anytime soon. And And just... To put it in the business perspective, you know, there was one company that held the patent on the design mm -hmm. for it, uh, and that patent has expired. And so as a consequence, everyone's coming out with mm -hmm. those types of treadmills. And there are other advantages to those treadmills. Now, some of those treadmills are still motorized, but the self-propelled ones are kind of cool. And now what they're doing with them is they're adding a resistance feature to them. So that you can use it almost like if you were to think about pushing a sled, mm -hmm. you can set these treadmills up so you put enough resistance into the belt so that when you push it, you feel like you're pushing a sled. Hmm. So if you're in a gym and they may have sleds, but not enough space to really move them, mm -hmm. then you can do some really cool things with that that would, there's resistance. And then the other thing that's really neat about the self-propelled type that really are beneficial is retro walking. So one of the things that we used to do in knee rehab with our patients, our ACL patients is have them do retro walking, which is walking backwards, just pulling a sled backwards. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it takes some of the patellofemoral loading off the knee joint but still allows you to use your quadriceps in mm -hmm. a very effective way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, post ACL, there's a lot of atrophy in the quadriceps. So it's a great way to work the, the quadriceps without putting too much stress on the knee. Hmm, very cool. You can do that on a self-propelled treadmill. You just load up the resistance and you turn around and push the belt, but facing backwards. But on a motorized treadmill, you can't really do that because now the belt is moving in the direction that you want to be pushing it. And so it's helping you. And so the mm -hmm. only way to do it on a motorized treadmill is to shut it off and actually right. push the deck without the motor on. Well, I've seen people do sometimes, yeah. Yeah, but why not just do it on a self-propelled treadmill? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It works cool. really well. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So you know what, Gigi, we're, we're kind of wrapping this up, but there are a couple of things I'd like to do. And I'd like to just offer some further insights into this phenomenon and this whole issue of whether treadmills are good. And because I've worked in the industry and I've worked mm -hmm. in fitness equipment manufacturing, and I've actually done a lot of research in treadmill design, you know, I'd like to just say that not all treadmills are created equal. And so it's difficult for me as a, as a research scientist and having worked in the field to look at all treadmills and just say as a blanket statement, they're good or bad. Mm -hmm. Some sure. treadmills are really good. And some treadmills are actually really bad. And so there's kind of like the good, better, best, or some of them are just downright ugly. <laughs> and I don't mean by the way they look, I mean by the way they function. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to get into necessarily the specific anatomical adaptations that occur because I think that's good fodder for a future episode. But what a lot of treadmill manufacturers are doing, first of all, is they're trying to mitigate shock and... Shock attenuation is part of it, but you know what? Shock is not necessarily a bad thing. 
And so we are all so concerned about eliminating shock from our exercise. And you talk about effective adaptation. Even you mentioned in our early episode, Why We Move, you know, that shock is actually pretty good. Yeah. Joints need shock. Yep. And bones, you know, improve their their stiffness, their resilience, the mm -hmm. tissues get stronger and more dense. Shock isn't necessarily a bad thing. But what the real issue is around treadmill design is that they're not actually addressing shock. A lot of the treadmills that you see out on the gym floor are really addressing ground reaction forces. They think they're dealing with shock, but they're not. And what they do is they soften the middle of the deck. And these are called trampoline decks or general soft decks. So some of the manufacturers just make the whole deck soft. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is they're messing around with the ground reaction forces because the middle of the deck, which is where you're at mid stance, is softer. It gives underneath you. Mm -hmm. And that is biomechanically inefficient. And while they're trying to solve a problem, they're going about it the very wrong way. Right. So let's, uh, and again, we're going to really get into this in a future episode, but when you're talking about shock, what we're talking about in the beginning is that initial impact. So whether you're heel strike, forefoot strike, whenever that foot hits the ground, that's the shock. Now, as that foot goes on the ground and your body weight starts coming over it, there's a point at which you're exerting your maximum force into the ground. And what you're saying is that if I'm pushing into like a spongy surface, so just think anybody that's listening, if you've ever stood on a on a, a bozu ball or an Eric's pad or something, when you push into a spongy surface, how efficient is that in returning the reaction force back into your body? Yeah. And so that's really the issue is, you know, these folks think that they should reduce ground reaction forces. And I'm like, no, you don't want to reduce ground reaction forces. And by the way, you can't. And there was a great study that was done by Dixon and colleagues in 2000, looking at, uh, the effects of surface conditions on ground reaction forces and lower extremity kinematics and running. And what they discovered is that even if you soften the surface underneath somebody's feet, you don't limit or reduce the ground reaction forces because you can't, you have to apply those forces into the ground in order to propel yourself forward. But what you do is you delay the loading of those forces. Mm -hmm. And so the, what's happening is your body's moving into an anatomical position, which is now beyond that which would normally occur when you get the proper timing of the load. And so it puts more stress on the knee joint in particular than what you want. And so by creating treadmills or designing treadmills that are soft in the middle, you're actually creating an environment that can lead to overuse injuries because we don't want the middle of the deck to be soft. We want the middle and back of the deck to be rock solid so that we can push off, create a ground reaction force that is efficient, effective at moving us forward in space. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So let me ask you a question. Is that a engineering flaw? Is that it's just because it's the cheapest way to make it? Or is it something like you know, where they figured out like an Oreo is just the perfect blend of like salty and sweet and fat. And like, they just, not that it's healthy for you, but they figured out like the right sweet spot for someone. So have they just done, like, have they brought in control groups and they've just found that people just 
tend to feel that softer feels better. Why is that so common? Well, I I don't mean to speak negatively uh, toward any of my industry colleagues, but it's so because they're solving the wrong problem. Mm. And for some reason, and I've spoken to a lot of the engineers who design these things, and for some reason, they think that they have to solve this ground reaction force problem. And it's not a problem. It's a, ne- it's a necessity. What they really need to do is they need to solve the impact problem, mm-hmm. which occurs when your foot strikes the deck at the front of the treadmill. Look, nobody is running at the back of the treadmill and landing on the middle of the deck. I mean, people are standing somewhere in the middle, maybe forward of middle, Mm -hmm. and their foot strikes the deck at the front. And so what you need to do is if you want to attenuate shock, that's the place to do it. And there are some treadmills that actually function that way. They are cantilever decks, not trampoline decks. And the cantilevers work similarly to a diving board. So there's a bushing that you move up and forward of that bushing, the pivot point is free to move and everything behind it is fixed. Mm -hmm. And so what it does is it makes the front of the deck springy. Mm -hmm. And what you can do is those bushings, if they have a different level of stiffness, you can make them as stiff as you want and you'll get a little bit of shock attenuation up front. But as soon as the foot passes that point on the treadmill and gets onto a solid deck, now you're able to effectively push into the deck, create the ground reaction forces that you need in order to move forward, which, by the way, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with some people saying it feels more difficult to run on a treadmill. And that's exactly what can cause that sensation or perception of difficulty. It's kind of like running in the sand if it's springy underneath you. You're going to get the ground reaction force, but it just feels more difficult. It's just an ineffective way of doing it. So let's move the shock absorption up to the front of the deck, and that solves that problem. Yeah, so to be clear, you're saying that the cantilever design actually solves that problem as where like the uh, trampoline design, as you said, where it's, it's, it gives in the middle is what makes it feel harder for people. It's kind of like running in sand. It's just not as rigid and doesn't return as, a, as an efficient ground reaction force. That's, that's correct. So the cantilever design is a solution. It attenuates the shock on impact, but provides a solid surface from mid stance to late stance and toe off so that you can push. Whereas the trampoline design is soft in the middle. So it doesn't solve the problem of shock, but it creates a new problem, which is inappropriate loading on the knee joint. So the trampoline system is the ugly. The cantilever system is the good, but the best is the slat-based treadmill. That is the best solution. And what they do with those designs is they select the rubber that has a what's called a very low coefficient of restitution. It sounds like a very technical term, Mm -hmm. but it's really not that hard to understand. Coefficient of restitution basically is a ratio 
of the velocity of an object before and after it collides with another object. Mm -hmm. So the easiest way to think about it is you're holding a basketball in your hand, mm -hmm. you drop the ball, it hits the ground and it mm -hmm. bounces up right before it hits the ground. It's approaching the ground at a certain velocity. When it comes back up off the ground, it's leaving at a certain velocity. Mm -hmm. The coefficient of restitution is the difference in velocity between before the contact occurred and then after. Mm -hmm. All right. So a basketball is a very high coefficient of, of restitution. But in these rubber slats that they use in these treadmills, they have a near zero coefficient of restitution. In other words, you drop an object on it, it doesn't bounce. Mm -hmm. So what that stuff does is it absorbs the shock very, very effectively, but it's so rigid that you can really push off it, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no springiness to it. So it allows you to really push off it effectively so that you can get a great ground reaction force returning. Mm -hmm. That is the best design. That's the one that will give you the best outcomes. Um, and there's no reverberation and it's really efficient and they're really, really nice to run on. Mm -hmm. You know, there's one last little point and we talked about this, but I think it's worth noting. Because when you run outside, we, we talked about variability early, mm -hmm. earlier, and, and there is some variability in the position. And that's not a bad thing. And, and sometimes people hear that and they say, well, that's no good. We want to be consistent. And the reality is there's no such thing as consistent running outdoors. We don't run at a constant velocity outdoors. We run at variable velocity. Our step lengths and stride lengths change. Our force production into the ground changes. So when you track people running through space outside, you see sort of the sinusoidal activity in their velocity. It goes up, it comes down, it goes up, it comes down. It's variable. And you would think that on a treadmill, that's not possible because the belt is moving at a constant speed mm -hmm. on a treadmill. So the belt is not variable. The belt speed is highly consistent. Mm -hmm. So people might look at that and say, that's a bad thing. But here's the reality. Treadmill runners find their variability. And as we were discussing earlier, what happens is when you watch somebody running on a treadmill, they move up a little bit and then they move back a little bit. They move up and back. And we did this research and we discovered on average people move three centimeters four and a half mm -hmm. while they're running on a treadmill. That's their natural gait variability showing up on a treadmill. So as human beings, we find a way to behave in a normal context and in a normal way. Yeah. And I think anyone that's run on a treadmill is totally familiar with that, especially if you're running for, you know, something longer than 10 minutes or so, because whether you're looking at a screen, listening to music or something, you know, you sort of like, you know, zone out into your exercise and there'll be a time where you feel like your hip may be bumping into the guardrail or you feel like, oh my God, I'm, I'm scooting back a little bit. So anyone that's run on a treadmill knows that, yeah, you're not, it, whether they're conscious of it or not, you're kind of aware that during the experience, you're, you're, yeah, your, your, your position is changing. Yeah. And I think what we want to do is encourage that. So let's sure. not prevent that from happening, but let's just make sure that we're aware of it so that if we start to go off too far, um, we're going to be able to correct it and, and solve it. So, you know, I'm going to ask you a question here, Gigi, because we're pretty much at the, you know, the wrap-up phase for this. What really matters? 
Like, what, what is it that matters here? We've been talking about treadmills and running and all these things. What matters? Like, why, what's the key takeaway for our listeners? Well, you know, I think to the point that we've been talking about since we started this podcast, which is building an ecosystem using what you have available to you. Um, and, you know, there's absolutely no reason to avoid a treadmill if you're concerned about a energy efficiency, changes in joint kinematics or changes in the the forces that would be going through your body relative to running outside. If you're avoiding a treadmill just because A, you don't have access to one or B, you find it monotonous, okay. But again, when we've got this wide ecosystem, um, you don't absolutely have to use a treadmill, but it's certainly a good tool to have in your toolbox and you can you can get a lot of bang for your buck from it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we said in our episode, the fitness ecosystem, don't exclude things because people tell you they're no good. Mm -hmm. Include everything. Include everything. The more you do, the more problems you solve, the more you adapt and the more fit you become. Right. So I absolutely think that, you know, people need to include treadmills uh, in their workout experience because they will get real benefit from them. Agreed. Yeah. And by the way, if you live in the Northeast and it's January and it's a blizzard outside, where else are you going to go running? <laughs> All right, Gigi, that's it for this episode. We want to thank our listeners for joining us. And, yes, thank you. And we will speak to you again in our next episode of Fitness for Consumption. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our round table? What's the round table? Well, it's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.